every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Rich Donahue, CMO of Ibotta. Ibotta is a cashback rewards platform that's delivered more than $1.1 billion in cumulative rewards to its users. It offers cashback on purchases on more than 2,700 leading brands and retail partners. Rich leads all marketing initiatives to welcome advertisers, publishers, and retail partners into the Ibotta Performance Network. He's a natural storyteller, a relationship builder, and a digital strategist. On this episode, Rich shares his insights into influencer marketing, why it's important to partner with the right people to get your key message across, and why creating opportunities for customers to save money is beneficial for your business. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by Qualified. Qualified is the pipeline generation platform for revenue teams that use Salesforce. You can intelligently grow your pipeline by understanding the signals of buying intent and having real-time conversations right on your website. You can learn more at qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Rich Donahue and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. And today I am joined by a special guest, Rich. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Excited to have you on the show. Excited to chat about all the cool stuff going on at Ibotta. The unicorn that you all are, super exciting. We're going to get into all those marketing lessons and stuff from your career. So let's get into it. What was your first job in marketing or demand? The first job that I was in was actually at an agency out in California, a small boutique firm. We did some work around electronics. We did some work around travel boards or travel tourism boards. So country of Japan, trying to get people to go and visit, check out the cool sites that were out there. So that was sort of my first real foray into generating some demand for some products. And so flash forward to today, tell us a little bit about your role at Ibotta. Yep. So lead marketing at Ibotta today. I've been doing that for about nine years. So I've seen the path from when we were the very, very definition of a startup up to today, where we're, we're probably more of a growth company and, and a bigger company, lead all aspects. So sort of the typical you know, external media that you might be running, trying to make sure we get our name out there, get new customers into the app, using the website, using the browser extension that we've launched. So on the consumer side, we handle all that. And then once they come in, once they've registered, all of the, all the sort of standard communications that they're going to get trying to push them through the funnel and trying to get them to convert into sort of our active users, right? Where they're redeeming, getting cash back within the platform. And then increasingly, we've been pushing more into B2B recently as we get set to launch our Ibotta Performance Network. So really trying to generate some demand from brands, from retail partners to come and leverage the platform there as we increase the scale of what we're offering as we push the network forward. Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? Where we go and feel honest and trusted and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. Tell us a little bit more about Ibotta's customers and who all you are selling to. 
we've actually been digging into this quite a bit most recently around you know segmenting our audiences and, and figuring out who we're talking to. So we started in the very, very early days as a CPG focus company, right? We were doing item level cash back. So I think the Oreos, the Coca-Colas of the world, and really that appealed to the people who are doing the shopping. And primarily that ended up being your millennial mom. So central of the country, the folks who were shopping for their kids' meals, right? What were they going to pack for lunch? What are they going to make for dinner? All that kind of stuff. Now, that wasn't the only segment we went after. Certainly, people are interested in saving cash right now, maybe more than ever with inflation and everything that's going on. So our audience is more broad than that. But that's really our core, right? That's our center. As we extended our offerings, as we started to offer cash back across your mobile shopping behavior, right? So we extended beyond grocery into retail and stuff like that. Our audience got bigger. We like to call them purchasing powerhouses these days, but really it's the people who are extending their shopping. Certainly the pandemic accelerated a lot of that behavior as people shifted their behavior, even in-store behavior like groceries to online grocery shopping, the click and collect type of phenomenon. It really opened up our TAM. It really opened up the audience that we could address and the people who are interested in getting cash back. The easier we made it, the more products, the more relevant to the things that they were buying, right? If you're not the grocery shopper, you're not interested in us. But if you're shopping online, which almost everybody is, and we can make it easy enough and valuable enough for you, then you're going to check us out. You're going to use our products. And so we've had some really nice opportunities with sort of an expanding set of people that way to grow our usage, which has been exciting. Yeah. So where does the company sit right now? How many customers do you all have, generally speaking? I know you can't share exact numbers here. It's a monthly thing for us, right? So people are coming in, they're using it. Some people are shopping, especially if they're online. Some people are doing you know, big ticket purchases and they want to save that cash monthly. Some of them are doing it quarterly. In general, we've had over 40 million people register to use it, which is great. Not all of them use it. On any particular month, we've got close to 10 million people probably who are opening up, having a session, checking the things out where they want to get cash back, be it on, on grocery products or be it more, more broadly on a bunch of the retail partners that we might have be it electronics, be it fashion, be it whatever category they might be exploring. So that goes up and down depending on on the season. Certainly holiday for us is going to be great, right? We're going to have the most people using it around Thanksgiving time when they're hosting parties, when they're stocking up on groceries, and then when they're thinking about the gifts that they're going to be giving everybody in that window, both retail and grocery do really, really well for us. January, another great window, right? People are thinking about all the money they just spent on holiday. And they want to figure out how they're going to save that money, how they're going to budget more effectively, how they're going to get smart with their cash. And they're going to turn to us. They're going to turn to other money saving or, or money management type of devices during those windows. And then it's going to wane a little bit. So it just ebbs and flows. But generally speaking, millions of people a month getting cash back, getting rewards. I think we paid about $1.2 billion at this point, credited that into people's accounts, which is really, really exciting. And it's nice to be able to sort of do that, like I said earlier, especially during a window where like inflation and costs and all we hear about is supply chain and how much more expensive things are, our ability to offset some of that cost and put money back in people's pockets is really nice. Yeah. Like you said, that leads the headlines every day. So I'm curious, how do you structure your marketing team? It's evolved over time. As you might imagine, it's kind of changing every day. We've got a couple of key departments. One is growth. One focuses on how do we get people in and get them active through the sort of funnel how do we efficiently get them in and how do we connect with them at the highest levels and then push them through to becoming a redeeming user? Ultimately, if they're not redeeming and getting cash back, they're not the type of user that we want. So we, we have that group. We've got a client marketing team that's focused on sort of working with sales, working with building the client base, making sure that our campaigns are effective and, and sort of accomplishing what we what the brands are looking for, what the retail partners are looking for within the business. 
we do our own PR. We work with an agency, of course, but we've got that group making sure that we're taking advantage of the headlines and putting out our own news. Like I said, again, inflation has been a big one right now. And we play well in that space because we are giving people cash back on the purchases that they need to make. And then we've got a product marketing team as well. They're working really closely with our product, our engineering teams to make sure that the things that we're producing, the, the new tips, the new tricks, the new tools within the app, within the website, within the BEX, those those are all getting communicated effectively to our existing teams. And then, you know, making sure that message is getting out into the ether with our with our growth, our client teams as well. And then lastly, we've got our, our creative group. So we do almost all of our creative in-house. We've certainly partnered with some agencies on some big efforts. We partnered with Talon most recently on some of their new spots that we put out. They're doing really great. We're really excited about the work we put together with them. But generally, that's how we're structured. We try and do a lot of stuff in-house. We've tried to sort of been opportunistic in being able to build from a smaller group to a bigger group and been thoughtful about how we wanted to, to make that journey. Let's go to the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are your three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? Oh, man, they're always fluctuating. We've talked to our clients about the importance of direct response, the importance of guaranteed ROI and knowing exactly what your dollars are getting you. Sort of with our clients, we can guarantee a cost per unit sold because if they don't sell that item, they're not paying. We're a paid performance platform. And so sort of held ourselves to that same standard historically. So digital media, the attributable media has always been sort of a staple for us. We want to know what we're getting. We want to know what you know our cost per install is. Our, we can flow that all the way down and, and sort of know our LTV to CAC ratios. And that's been really important for us historically. Anything that's measurable has been, it might get a little bit more budget if we're doing well with it. It might get a little bit less, but that is a staple. That is sort of the uncuttable. In a way, we're always going to be sort of doing that and pushing money through those channels because we're able to move that money across the different channels and across the different teams as we need to, where we're seeing pockets of effectiveness. More and more, I think for us, we've been talking a lot about brand formants. We've been talking about sort of the, the convergence of those uncuttable sort of digital dollars that we want to make sure are attributable and the, the harder to measure sort of more call it traditional stuff. I'd put TV right now in that uncuttable bucket. Some of these new spots that I mentioned a bit earlier have done really well for us. We've gotten better at measuring the effects of TV through some market tests early on and then through just smarter applications of that media more recently. We're seeing really great gains there, really strong performance. And certainly the privacy stuff has hurt some of the digital media. Um, The effectiveness of that, the measurability, the trackable nature of it is making that more challenging. So TV is there. And really just influencers are probably one of the other ones that I put in there right now is uncuttable. Would not have been my answer a couple of years ago at all. But I think more and more we're talking about just being at the place where people are interacting with media and choosing to interact with the media. TV is one where, generally speaking, it's interrupting the show that you're watching, right? It's commercial. That's I'm used to it. I think we're all used to it. And I think influencers are kind of the exact opposite, right? Like the reason I'm going to their channels, the reason why I'm listening to what they have to offer is because they're presenting me relevant information. It's that the relevance of that message is what I'm tuning in for. It's becoming more impactful. And we've seen some really good results from from starting to integrate our efforts into, into those channels. And so right now, I think the question is how we effectively lean into those things. I think ultimately we just want to, we want to be in a place where when they're thinking about what they're going to be shopping for, when they're thinking about paying attention to the content, 
we are a piece of that puzzle and we are sort of resonating with them in the places that they want that message to hit. So those are the three, but quite honestly, if you ask me three months from now, there's probably one of those that's getting replaced and there's something else that's top of mind that's happening to do really well. I think you just got to be open to that. I mean, the team is always sort of looking for the next, right? Or reevaluating the things that they've sort of held close to the vest historically. And generally speaking, you want to you want to empower them to make sure that they're able to make that shift and they're able to be accountable to where they're spending their money and where they're putting their time and effort to build the business. I'm curious, obviously the last two years, everything has been changing so rapidly and the world is changing rapidly, but also within marketing, it's changing rapidly, especially in the world where you live in. What are the time horizons that you look at for those types of campaigns? From where I sit sometimes, and we talk to a lot of B2B marketers, you have a conviction for a type of a campaign and a duration and all that sort of stuff. And you say, hey, I'm not going to kill this, you know, after a month when, you know, this is a a year-long campaign. But anyway, so what do you think about duration for some of these things? I would have said it was a longer time horizon uh, pre-pandemic, but we had so many things planned and so, so much good stuff that we just had to sort of pull back or change. I always like to, to say like March Madness didn't happen in 2020. And we had a whole sort of internal thing built, brand partners built, and then that tournament went away. And it was like, whoops. Now, granted, that's only a month long, but we had to pivot, right? We had to shift the way we were doing it, what we were doing. The pandemic changed every program, basically every way we had set up 2020 changed as a result of the pandemic hitting. And I think that changed the way that we start to look at programs just holistically. We were planning to do a Thanksgiving type event in 2020. It was around the election time that year too. So there were implications there and timing implications. We'd started to map that out. The whole construct of that program, right? The impact of that program, the way we set it up changed. And we were working through that sort of for months leading up to it, but it was completely different in a pandemic environment versus not. In terms of a general campaign, not one that's impacted by sort of macro factors, I tend to think it's it's campaign dependent. You're going to have things that you want to make a big bet on and you want to look at, but you got to evaluate it too, right? If it's, if it's just not working, you got to ask yourself why it's not working. Did we do a bad job executing it? Is the message just totally off? And you're honest with yourself and you say, hey, we got this wrong. The channels that we picked are just not relevant to the audience that we needed to hit. I think you got to walk away or or you got to optimize it to a place where you can get it to the result that you thought you were going to get. There are other implications or or other programs that it's going to take a while, right? You got to get that frequency. You have to let that message burn in a little bit. You've got to be patient. And patience is the hardest part of any program because especially if you're You've been building it for months, you've, you've gone out, you've shot material for it, you've had a big part of the team working on it, you've been talking about how it's coming, and then you launch it, and there's just sort of crickets, right? Everybody wants it to, oh my gosh, the business has now turned, and you're 10x and everything else. It's like probably never going to just pop day one. It's going to take that time to, to sort of roll up, and you're going to start to see it come through, and we're such a measurement-focused company, generally speaking, that it's hard to just be patient and let it let the signs start pointing that, yeah, this is working the right way. Some of it's just managing expectations. And then I think you can play it out. And we've certainly had some programs. We just did a bigger sort of production push, a bigger program around money and everything. It's really just a matter of how much you're willing to change it, how much you're willing to update it, how much you're willing to revise it, I think. And then, like I said up front, you got to be willing to walk away. If you can't get it right, there's no reason to chase it, right? You can fight another fight. You touched on this a little bit, but were there certain things that maybe your most cuttable budget item or something that you're moving away from over the next year? We've struggled with digital media a fair bit. 
some of the iOS 14 changes, some of the, the privacy concerns, I think we're just not seeing the same type of value, the same type of conversion that we had seen prior. So while I would never walk away from it entirely because we do get some great attribution, some great savers out of those channels, our ability to get the same type of value, the same type of efficiency from them has dropped. And at the same time, we've been able to sort of put that money in in other places, be it influencer, be it TV, be it internal programs, right? Our referral program, for instance, and just see better returns. Is it so, just expensive? Is it just that it's just like too cost prohibitive? It's just not converting the same way that it was. So yeah, on a cost per basis, as we look at the number of people that we can pull through and the the number of people who ultimately make it to the, the point we want them to make in our funnel, it's just not getting there. It's all relative, right? Like, there's still a ton of value there. It's not that we don't want to be on those channels. In fact, I just mentioned it as uncuttable, right? So we're absolutely going to play in that space. And there are, there are certainly partners that are doing really well for us and continue to do really well for us. But in terms of our ability to just continue to push money into the into that channel in particular, it's just challenging. And, and that's no different than our clients, right? So one of the, the challenges that we've experienced, and it's nice to be, be able to take that firsthand knowledge and then go have these candid conversations with CPGs or retailers who may have been on Facebook or may have been deploying money on some of these channels where they're struggling, right? They're seeing the same headwinds. They're experiencing the same challenges. I think in in, in this macro environment, brands and, and retailers, advertisers in general are being asked to really take a hard look at how they're deploying their cash and, and where that best place to put that first dollar and that last dollar are. And if you can sort of get that guaranteed return, it's hard to pass that up. It's hard to pass that up. Now, it's not the only place you should go, right? Yeah. I have that holistic view that I was talking about earlier. We're trying very hard to sort of walk that line and, and do things that drive the intangibles as much as the measurable. But I think in this climate, a lot of brands are really taking a hard look at making sure they have that mix right. And I think they're they're starting to put more money into, into tactics like us, into channels like us where they can know what they're going to get versus some of the more speculative stuff. Can you go a little bit more into your influencer strategy? Because I think this is something that everyone's trying to figure out and is truly one of the most complex situations. You could spend endless amount of time working on influencer campaigns. And so I'm curious how you think about it. Yeah, it's changed a lot like over the last couple of years, I think. Influencers are great, right? Their, their word of mouth is the best. You and I are talking and I tell you to check out this particular brand or whatnot. There's value there, right? You trust me. You're like, okay, if, if they like it, this is something that probably I'm going to like. So I view it very much as sort of an extension of word of mouth. Word of mouth is challenging though, right? Because you got to go talk to 50 people in order to get 50 people over. Now, the beauty of influencers, you get that word of mouth and they've got a ton of people who follow them, who are interested in what they have to say and who will more likely than not check what, what they're saying out, which is great. I think historically they haven't had great constructs for working with brands and, and that's evolving, right? It used to be that it was a flat fee, then it was maybe CPM driven. A lot of them weren't direct response oriented and or it was really hard to measure their impact. And so the challenge I would face sort of heavy on, on measurability was just how do I know that they're the true driver? And you can set up tests and roll with them and, and do that kind of thing. But I always struggled with like, how do you truly scale that? How do you scale that in a measurable way versus just hitting a big audience. And generally what I found is that once they got to a size of audience that was really important, their sort of CPMs and their measurables didn't stack up. They didn't feel as good. And then the measurability made it really, really difficult. 
they're getting better. They're getting smarter with how they, they set it up. They're getting smarter with how they talk to their audience, how they build that sort of interaction. It feels less like a hard to measure tactic and more like a measurable media tactic now. And so what we're trying to do is just find the right content. We're trying to find the people who are talking about the right things so that when they're talking about it, fits, right? It's an audience that's tuning in for the right reasons and it makes sense. Like a Kim Kardashian, right? You could argue like millions of dollars for her to post something, but she's got tens of millions of followers, if not more. That's not a good fit for us. No matter how big her audience is, they don't want to hear her talking about saving cash back. Yeah. Like, it just does not work. And so finding those for us, finding the people who have an audience where it's authentic, like if it's not authentic, it doesn't work. So that's where we've spent more time and effort is figuring out how do we, how do we get the right influencers? How do we get the people who are talking about the things that make sense for us, right? Like being a smart shopper, moms do really well for us, right? They're figuring out how to, how to get the kids to school on time and how to manage a family and how to do all these things. And we fit nicely into that. Now, some of these have great big audiences and, and some of them don't. And it's balancing our bandwidth and our time and energy to make sure that we're connecting with the right combination of really meaningful content is what it is. And, and ultimately, I think probably my team would tell you we spend probably too much time trying to evaluate the effectiveness of it. You have to you have to trust that you're hitting the audience the right way and you're getting your message there the right way. We want to, we want to be the right message. We want to be with the right partners. And that's true of any influencer, right? As long as you have the right partner, it's probably going to be a really good partnership. And if you have the wrong partner, it's going to be lopsided. Do you vary the approach there for like big names that would be those type of people versus hundreds and hundreds of micro influencers? How do you think about that stuff? That's the challenge we face is like one fell swoop versus tons of time and effort to go and build the relationships with some of the smaller yeah. micro-influencers. There are more and more agencies, there are more and more sort of vendors out there who can help you partner yep. with them, who are sort of rolling all of them up into a nice, nice sort of easy package. And we've explored some of that too, in the sense of trying to make sure that we're balancing the team's time and effort with agencies or groups that can help us get into those micro-influencers, I tend to think that they're really valuable. They do have a more personal relationship oftentimes because they tend to have a smaller niche or a smaller target, or they just haven't blown up yet, right? Maybe the content's amazing, but they just haven't gotten to that next stage. And where we can find those partnerships and we're seeing really big opportunities, we'll lean into them. I think that the balance of having the really promotions and things that really matter and where you matter to that person's like well-being so that they can continue creating content, that is where I think you get a lot of the really good partnerships is like, Hey, if you're paying the bills, paying their, for their kid to go to school or whatever it is, like that person will carry the water for you in a good way. They will. And I think it goes both ways, right? I think one of the challenges just for brands in particular is just giving them control. Certainly you want them to hit your message. You know, you want them to talk about the brand the right way. And, and we've had this conversation internally, like how much creative control do we give them? The reason why they're an influencer, the reason why people follow them is because they have their own style. They have their own way of presenting information. They have their own brand. And what you're really trying to do is leverage what they're really good at and make sure people hear about what you're really good at. And so I think where we've tried to do more is just giving them operational freedom and trust. And that's hard, right? Because you're seeding what you do and like all the great messages you've crafted and all the stories that you want to tell 
to someone else to tell that story. And you're giving them sort of the freedom to do it. Again, if you partner with the right people, they're going to tell the story the way that resonates with their audience and gets your key messages across and gets your story across in a way that's authentic to both you and them. And that's where you're going to see the sort of sweet spot. Hopefully that that's to a huge audience of their followers. I'd rather get the right message to their smaller groups, people that are really enthusiastic about using Ibotta. Then again, get partnered up with Kim Kardashian and give her all the, you know, the perfect message. It's just not going to resonate. It's just not going to be authentic. So that's the balance. I think find the right people, find the right scale, and then let them sort of be authentic to who they are with telling your story. Do you have a favorite campaign that you've ran recently? Thanksgiving. So I bought a ran, I talked about a little bit ago with the pandemic. We ran a Thanksgiving campaign where we gave away free Thanksgiving dinner to anybody who signed up for the app, anybody who used the app to get their holiday meal. It came at a time where a lot of people were out of work. A lot of people were struggling. It was still very much top of mind. A lot of people were still work from home. A lot of people were out of work. It was the epitome of sort of us being able to leverage our brand partners who stepped up and, and partnered to offer free stuff, tons of goodwill, sort of the ultimate win-win-win. For us, we saw a lot of people come in and take advantage of it. So we had some great growth opportunities, a ton of reactivation of people who had maybe fallen off. You know, when you're out of work, a lot of things drop off. A lot of things aren't top of mind. You're like, how am I going to pay the rent? I don't need to worry about this app. I don't need to worry about this other stuff. Like all that kind of pushes to the background. And so we were able to sort of really extend that goodwill. And it was amazing the way it galvanized sort of our team and our company around this sort of do good mission. The brands had tons of impact. They sold a lot of units, uh, even though they were you know, partnering with us to give them away. People had to still go to the store and make that purchase. It was part of their Thanksgiving spread. You know, we got tons of amazing messages from people who were like, I didn't know how, I didn't think I was going to have a Thanksgiving this year. And I did. And thank you, you know, and those types of messages, you, you sometimes don't get them straight away. Don't get them in a campaign that you run. Like nobody's thanking us for the TV commercial we're running right now. But when you put food on somebody's table in that way, it's amazing. And the consumer won because they got a Thanksgiving meal. So every party won in that campaign. And it was sort of like proof that you can do good by doing well, right? Or do well by doing good. It just really, it was amazing. And and so we've hitched our wagon to that. We did it again last year. And we're going to do a version of it again this year because it's good for our business. It's good for our partners and it's great for the consumer. And if you can find that sort of magic, it's, it's really fun to be a part of. I know how much time and effort the team puts into building it and thinking through how it's going to work and working with partners and doing that. It's not lost on, I think, anybody on the organization at this point, how much effort goes into creating that. But when those sort of testimonials roll in and you start to see it take off, you start to see people redeeming it and sending in pictures of their spreads. That's it's awesome. awesome. It's so good. And it's just like, how could you not love that one always will have a special place, especially the first year, because we simply didn't know if it would resonate either, right? This is one where you just, it feels right. It feels like it's got to be impactful. It feels situationally like appropriate. Mm-hmm. It made everything sort of all the hard work really sort of paid off. So that's definitely my favorite. Hard pressed to say I'll find another one that will take its place. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's definitely the favorite. What about your biggest learning experience? We've had lots of campaigns that haven't gone well. A lot of times it's because of the input that I'll give to the team because I'm further away from it. I'm like, no, I think it'll go this way. We should definitely tweak it. And 
and they listen to me. But joking aside, I think we do do a lot of A-B testing. And a lot of times when we're, when we're testing campaigns, you want to push the boundaries of what you think might work. You can make micro tweaks that you're fairly certain are going to be successful. Maybe you squeeze a point or two of success out of it. Some of the ones that maybe are far, more far-reaching, bigger risk, bigger reward, right? There's a reason why you might believe it, it to be true and why it wouldn't be. One of the biggest mistakes that we made was we believed one of the incentives that we were running for new users was a big dollar amount. We felt pretty strongly that big dollar amount had to stay in place in order to sort of maintain activation rates, maintain the metrics that we were having. And that's expensive. It's expensive in a good way because people use it. They're in the flow. Now we're, now we're rolling. One of the folks on the team was like, that's the way we've constructed all the other sort of elements leading up to it. We don't need that incentive anymore. And I'm, you know, me, others, whoever sitting there going, no, but that's the one that when we did that, it worked. It was impactful. Like, how can we walk away from that? Despite the spend, it's good spend. And sure enough, they went and ran the test and they were right. They were 100% right. Like that incentive wasn't necessary. And at the time, right, two years ago, three years ago, whenever we implemented the first time, it was a great win. The thing that moved the business. But we got stuck in our ways. And fortunately, we have good people who are willing to challenge convention and say, hey, we've changed a lot of stuff. This is not the same situation we were in when this was successful. We don't need it anymore. It was a success until it wasn't. And then it was sort of a failure, right? And it's just like, when do you find out that, that the thing that worked no longer works? Apparently, it's when, when other smart people come in and challenge that preconceived notion. Obviously, you have a wildly successful app. But I'm curious, how do you view your website? Website's super important. A lot of people, especially now that they're working from home, are in front of the computer all the time. They're doing more online shopping than they might have been. A lot of people don't like to do it on their phone. For us, it's always been a mechanism, at least in the, a long time ago, it was a mechanism to get them into the app, right? Introduce them to the materials, push them into the app. More and more, it's become a place where they can go right into making cash back. So they can jump off of the website. They can get their cash back on their online grocery orders. They can add things to their list that way. They can go right from the website and find deals on their favorite retailers. So increasingly, it's become much more of a sort of sister experience to the app than, than what it was a long time ago, which is really a mechanism to get people sort of pushed into the, the app. It's a very much a standalone and very much an opportunity to f- allow us to fulfill our mission, which is to make every purchase rewarding. More and more of those purchases aren't just happening in store at a grocery store. They're happening on online, on sweaters and travel and everything else. And so uh, when we really hunkered down and said, hey, how do, we make, how do we make true on this mission? It was to amplify the web and make the web sort of a destination unto itself so that we could pay people cash when they're starting their shopping trip on the website. We put a lot of time and effort, obviously dedicated squads and dedicated functionality there to, to ensure that we can pay you cash no matter where you're shopping, no matter what you're buying. So bigger and bigger piece of the puzzle. Excited to see how that continues to evolve. And ultimately, we want to make it easier for people, whether you want to start with the website, whether you want to actually download the, the browser extension that we have and let us go find the best deal for you. Price compare shop, do all that. It's great. In fact, shameless plug, but when I thought I was cool with the browser extension. So you heard about all this baby formula shortage and everything recently. Oh, yeah. We actually have out-of-stock alerts with the browser extension. And we were able to let our audience know, again, a lot of moms, a lot of young moms, maybe struggling with trying to find baby formula. You can download the extension, go set an alert for whatever formula you have. And as it comes back in stock, uh, it will actually notify you and let you know. So it saves you the hassle of trying to 
go to a million different websites or go to a million different companies trying to find out where you can get this. It started as a out-of-stock mechanism when people went home for the pandemic, right? They were trying to find PS5s and all their other stuff that when they were stuck at home, they wanted to buy and, and couldn't find because of shortages. And that utility is now being able to sort of help moms find baby formula or really find help any consumer find something that they just want to look for. And they don't want to spend the time and effort to sort of have to sit there and refresh sites trying to figure out when that next supply is going to come in. So wow, that's right. Pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool. All right, let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly. As we've got punches and kicks. Where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, your competitors, or anyone else. Have you had a memorable dust up in your career, Rich? I think anybody who tells you no is either super conflict avoidant and or is straight up lying to you. I think if you're doing the things you need to do, if you're thinking independently, you're going to have those moments where you just disagree with somebody. You're just going to get into it. And I think actually that's really healthy. I think when you have that disagreement, you don't have to be yelling and screaming or anything like that, right? You're going to go at each other. You're going to, here's why this is, this is the right path. And they're going to have their opinion on, on why their path is. If it's respectful, if it's thoughtful, if it's healthy, it's good. You want to have that. And ultimately you'll come out on the other side I think in a great place, you'll be willing to have that, that same sort of open kind of conversation the next time, because you know that it isn't the end of the relationship or it didn't submarine everything. Right. And I think if it's thoughtful, you end up forcing the other side to think about a different perspective. Sometimes it's hard to, you know, you have to agree to disagree or you both walk out and you're frustrated and maybe you need a third party to come in and and help, you know, tie break or, or, or help solve the problem, provide an independent point of view. But you got to have those conversations because that's the only way you're going to really get to the root. If you don't have them, somebody's going to walk away frustrated. That festering is probably the most unhealthy thing, right? It's going to erode trust. It's going to erode confidence. It's just, it's not going to be a good, healthy situation. Nobody wants to have the dust up. I think it's probably a good thing. You got to address it. And the earlier you address it, the smaller the dust up. Let's get the facts out on the table. Like, you know, I'm defensive, certainly about my team, about things that I believe in. Like, I'm not going to be 100% right. I might be 70% right on this particular argument. And then we have to make it better with the sort of reasoning or, or thoughtfulness of the other people who are sat on the other side of the table. You got to be able to agree to disagree and consider the alternative side of the debate and get to a good place. But it's hard. All right, let's get to our final segment. Quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers. Just like how quickly you can talk to somebody if you go to qualified.com because you can talk to one of their salespeople right there on the website. Qualified is the best. We love them dearly. And if you want people, qualified prospects who are on your website right now to be talking with your salespeople, you should use qualified. So go to qualified.com to learn more. Quick and easy, just like these questions. Rich, are you ready? Let's go. Number one, what hidden talent or skill do you have that's not on your resume? Golf. I'm a good golfer. Does that count? Yeah, it counts. You know, like handicap golf? Like like how what's what's your handicap? I'm like a one. Oh, that's pretty good. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you know it. You'd never know it, but I played a lot. Do you have a favorite book or podcast or TV show or something like that that you've been checking out recently? Favorite book? I've always been partial. There's two for whatever reason. They're kind of different. The Count of Monte Cristo and The Alchemist. Every now and again, I'll just go back to those two. 
and roll that way. And then I'm big on current events. I love sort of the evolving nature of just news cycles and stuff like that, be it trade stuff, whether, you know, advertising, marketing, whatnot, or just general history, the day-to-day nature of of what's going on in life. I dig that stuff. Do you have a non-marketing hobby that might make you sort of indirectly a better marketer? I love people watching. So that's probably it. Uh, I don't go to restaurants to eat. think I go just to simply watch the (laughs) passerby. Like if I can sit outside and watch the people walking down, walking down the street and see the dynamics of how they interact. I think it's hilarious. In many cases, it's super interesting. The people dynamics are really interesting. Probably care more about that because I'm in marketing. But I think as you watch those interactions and you watch the way people interact, it makes you better. I also think being a parent has made me a better marketer. I think I have more patience probably first and foremost, but more thoughtfulness around what I'm trying to do and how I'm trying to raise my kids. And that thoughtfulness sort of leads to maybe be more empathetic, be more, more considerate of what we're trying to achieve on the work front. I'm a better, more well-rounded person for that. What piece of advice would you give a first time CMO is trying to figure out their marketing strategy? Good question. Probably just trust your instincts you're in that role because you've done a good job up until this point. Sometimes you got to be willing to fight for the things that you believe in, right? I think everybody who, who comes into that role has reason to believe that this is the place they should go and these are the things they should be doing. And you got to be willing to go to bat for those because the last thing you want to do is not be successful, not doing the things you thought you should be doing. And I think people can live with doing the things they believe in, charting the path that they think they have to go and what's right for the business sort of the no regrets path in a way. I think the opposite isn't true, right? You never want to look back and be like, I knew that wasn't, I knew we had to do this. I knew we had to go that way and having not fought for that. So you got to trust the things that you, you know, and trust the things that you believe in and go to bat for them, right? And be willing to push for the things that you believe in. Awesome. Rich, it's been wonderful having you on the show today. So many lessons, so many nuggets. For our listeners, you can go to ibotta.com to learn more. Download the app if you haven't already. Save some shekels, get some cash back. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? I think this was great. Really appreciate the time. Onward and upward. Thank you. Indeed. Thanks again for joining. The ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to qualified.com to learn more.